From Olympia, Washington, I'm Mark Lee Morrison, and you are listening to the 50th episode of Low Profile. Urge Overkill began in 1980s Chicago and carved their own path over the past several decades. In the 90s, they toured with bands who are household names now, and they reached that status on their own with their cover of Neil Diamond's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. That was on the groundbreaking Pulp Fiction soundtrack. On this episode, Urge Overkill founders Eddie King Roser and Nash Cato join my guest co-host Casey Bruce and me to talk about their new album, We. They also talk about loaning their suits to their tour mates in Nirvana, the band's long hiatus following their two albums on Geffen Records, Nash's brief run as a solo artist, Jack Black's hand in resurrecting the group, and their admiration for other artists like Cheap Trick, Selena, and Wham!, This was recorded at TCTV Studios, and this episode is the first in a series of new TV-style, low-profile programs. Uh, You'll be able to find a link to that if you want to watch it on this episode's website at lowprofilepodcast.com. As soon as that's available, you can find it there. Low Profile is listener-supported, which means that your donations keep these engines cranking out new episodes. If you'd like to contribute, the best way to do that is by signing up for flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash lowprofile at whatever rate is in your budget. This show also receives in-kind, non-monetary support from these independent Olympia, Washington businesses. San Francisco Street Bakery, Schwartz's Deli, Rainy Day Records, Old School Pizzeria, and Schurler Premium Shitty American Lager from Three Magnets Brewing Company. And thanks to Nathan Burko Gibson, who's donated the artwork for all of the Season 5 episodes. This is Low Profile. I'm Mark Lee Morrison. We got Casey Bruce here. Hello. And uh, today we are talking to... Nash Cato and Eddie King Roser of Urge Overkill. They've been a band for, oh gosh. Well, since 84? Yeah, yeah, mid 80s. Mid 80s. And uh, then there was a long time where they weren't a band. Mm -hmm, Right. A couple of those, I think. Now they are again. Now they're a band. Yeah, we we talked to them for a good hour or so Mm -hmm. and got the inside scoop. I would say. Yeah. On a few elements. The, yeah, absolutely. They, they filled us in about their first breakup mm-hmm. and uh, how they kind of came back together mm-hmm. again. Got the backstory behind their new single, which is called Freedom. Is a Wham cover. Mm-hmm. And let's hear that right now. But you know that I forgive you Love just brings me down I don't want you to be 
Well, um, okay. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you guys. Thanks a lot. Yep. See yeah. Great interview. See ya. <laughs> um, yeah. So here we are. It's it's been ten years, at least, since Rock yes. and Roll Submarine, and that was yeah. that was a beast. That album just totally slayed. Agreed. After waiting fifteen years, and then. Um, you got another one coming out. This is going to come out right before the new album, We, drops. And it's been another decade. How, how did you guys spend your time, if you don't mind us asking, in the interim? Well, I guess, Nash, we, we've been, uh, we've been, uh, uh, well, we were we were traveling we did do one big show at Wrigley Field with uh, uh, a Chicago uh, lineup uh, sort of celebrating uh, sort of uh, Dave Dave Grohl kind of learned about punk rock as a kid in Chicago mm -hmm. and, uh, with naked Reagan. Yeah, uh, he saw Naked Ray Gun as a child and uh, sort of had a homecoming uh, Wrigley Field show, which um, he, he really is like a world dominance guy now. And he's sort of like, uh, you know, this is really, uh, you know, a big thing that uh, this show sold out and that he could do it. But uh, obviously it was uh, something that we wanted to be a part of. But we haven't done a whole lot of, uh, you know, touring, and we, we toured a little bit for uh, Rock and Roll Submarine, but uh, the the way it went for uh, our, our, I guess, for our last record, Rock and Roll Submarine, was the the inspiration. I guess was, uh, you know, we were really we had kind of parted ways uh, for good, as bands do, or so we thought, and yeah. uh, there was some. Uh, there was some warming of, of the waters. We were all in Chicago. We had some mutual friends. And we, we did, we were convinced to uh, to reunite for a show and see how it worked. We, we got Jack Black to sweeten the deal. He said, you know, I'll open up for you guys. Just please, please play a show. Awesome. Wow. And it, we ended up having quite a jolly time uh, all around. And we sort of forgot what it was we exactly what you know what the 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 reasons we weren't speaking right. to each other were no longer apparent yeah the rift was we, invisible i think we yeah we we realized that perhaps this whole thing had been a tremendous misunderstanding you know we played a few shows but we sort of felt like it would be a real uh feat to to do a record that we felt deserved the name uh, Urge Overkill.
that that took some time, uh, needless to say, from the the that first sort of quote you know reunion show to to uh, rock sub uh, was was quite a journey, and you know some some of the and and I guess it 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 was uh, sort of a healing uh, experience in that uh, you know by the time. Exit the Dragon uh, was being recorded and released. You know, part of the problems surrounding that is that we were all pretty deep into our own uh, holes, and and you know, continuing with the with the band w was literally uh, seen as sort of a life and death matter. <laughs> and yeah. I've, I've I'm absolutely certain that had we. You know, had we kept, had we not broken up uh, the band at that time, somebody was going to end up dead, and uh, that didn't happen. And well, that's... that happened, yeah. and uh, you know. Thanks for breaking up, then. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, like were you scratching the music itch in another way? You know, I, I mean, all played... we did was tour and record for years, and we were just burned out. Sure. Yeah. I, I I personally I I use the 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 time as opposed to you know I've got a you know I've got a kid who's now ready to fly the coop so um, I successfully raised a child to college a, a, age and he's a he's a, he's a, seems to be a well raised young man uh, good work so good work I yeah. never imagined would be would would happen. And uh, so I, I did. Yeah. I biz, did busy myself with various uh, pursuits that I always wanted to do, such as I actually learned how to play the drums properly. I could probably drum for a band now. I got all, <laughs> I got our. Uh, we had we had uh, inherited some uh, stash of synthesizers that I realized were like ancient and worth a lot of money, and I figured out. You know, it's impossible. You turn them on. I remember I was like, I'm going to get out this Moog synthesizer and uh, make it make it sing, baby. And I turned it on <laughs> and it made a horrible siren noise. And Soren started crying. And it's like I had to wait a few years because it made such a scary noise. He's like, <laughs> became frightened of the, the synthesizer. But damn it, if I didn't take that time to become a pretty damn mean keyboardist and if you know anything about me i'm the shoot the keyboard guy and i was always the, you know pushing for keyboards you know just here and there on certain tracks yeah and ed was defiant he's like we're you know we're a rock band we don't need mm -hmm. you know we don't need fucking keyboards i'm like yeah but it's a really tasteful line or this and that and it's just ironic that, you know, years later, all of a sudden, he, you know, he, he just started ripping open all these old cases. You know, we had, uh, you know, and Benny Clav Moog and, Clavicore. and uh, yeah, and, uh, we had, you know, turns a, out uh, we had several Rhodes pianos, a Wurlitzer. Yeah, and then the uh, Honer Clav. Yeah. And, uh, and an Arb Omni. You know, which was the string sound for him, and, and just about all '70s recordings. Yeah, I feel like so I he even did. heard a like a Mellotron on Exit the Dragon, at least at one point. Maybe, maybe that's my imagination. Yeah, 
It probably wasn't a real Mellotron. It might have been, uh, you know, synthesized. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know there's a Mellotron sound on, uh, I can't say glad at you. There yeah. is one um, on Wii, yeah. The, yeah. The, uh, can't stay glad. That's, that's correct. Yeah, we, we didn't uh, take it to this. Not, neither one of us were, were uh, spent this time taking it to the stage, as it were. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, we're guitarists, you know. Yeah, yeah, but we've been, you know, I've got, you know, thousands of ideas on my on my iPhone. It's it's you know after after a while, once the the process of how you know what a record means and what it means to do a record used to be this sort of you had this tiny flash you had this window where if you didn't get you know you had to put everything you had into a few days of recording time yeah, and it was going to be and you would hope that lightning would strike during this time and luckily enough for us i felt like with our touch and go records we were a band like Urge did benefit from having these uh, happy accidents happen when they had to happen because you weren't going to be able to re record a record in your basement or anything like that. And I think that that sense of mystery and heightened uh, that that sense that this is a once in a lifetime thing, when you go to digital, it's sort of like well, it's like whenever the occasion strikes and if you have a chance to redo a vocal or a lyric a million times, it completely changed the, the psychology behind what it was to be a recording artist. Yeah. You know, it, it was completely, uh, to us, was kind of an ass-backwards way of doing it where you know, you had to go in there and whatever you did was going to be your record for better or for worse. And, you know, we, we really, I think, maybe missed that sense of, okay, you get a chance to do it and it's done because uh, uh, neither of us were particularly interested in becoming recordists or like uh, engineer technology people. But you start working with people and, and you get, you know, you get to this idea where they're like, you know, you want to get it done and you want to, you know, really nail something first time. And everybody you work with is just like, Oh, don't worry about it. it doesn't, you know, it's not happening. We'll just come back tomorrow. Yeah. So, no, you know, we kind of tried to, to, you know, use techniques that would, we, we would keep our, our first, uh, run throughs through songs and and i think we did try to use the best sort of one take techniques that maybe isn't obvious on these last two records but the the ideas generated uh that we then had time to to work on and 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 finish a lot of them are are uh sort of first run or first you know listenable runs through songs where that would be the demo we worked from and tried to keep the spirit of, of when the song was exciting and new
people who who uh, still use those old machines because they do something to the they do something to your ideas and they they, they kind of squash them together yeah in, in a way that's a pleasurable to the ear but yeah did you guys produce the new record we we did indeed yeah yeah um, and you self-released as well this one isn't self-released. It's it's uh, Omnivore Records. It's good to have a record company again because the last one we did self-release, and uh, it's nice to have some some people help with the logistics and all that. Yeah, I think we're also gonna do it something with Jeff Tweedy too. So cool. they've got it's one of the labels that they don't have a huge staff, but they're doing uh, re-releases and maybe more obscure releases that they feel need to see the light of day. Matthew Sweet and Jeff Tweedy and Big Star and you guys, that's that's a great label yeah, right there. And, they, and they're they're trying to sort of, nowadays you can sort of unearth, you can go back uh, and find tapes that have never been released. And I know the president is is on sort of a top secret mission now in, in uh, Memphis to, to, uh, to get the stems from some very famous uh, uh, but I, I can't talk cool. about that now. Cool. We'll, we'll keep an eye on yeah, that. Definitely. Um, but anyway, omnivore. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how, so it, how did your experience of self-releasing compare to like, you, you did like the touch and go things, like sub pop singles and then, and then Geffen. Like, and that's like, is that like a blow up moment for you guys? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, it was a great ride on Gaffin, of course. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we, we had a budget for everything. We, we were, you know, the zeitgeist, as it were, was all about guitars and, and, and our kind of music. 
you know, that, that era, I, I, you know, I have to say for us, it was unfortunate in that, uh, I think we would have continued had it not been sort of the inner dramatics, you know, you're into this life that you, you hope for and dream about, but it's, 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 uh, things spun out crazier than we could, could have imagined. Uh, I don't know what that we wouldn't have continued. You know, that was our choice. Uh, and I guess people assume this is, don't know this, but Nash and I were at an, we were at an impasse. So we had two more records to, to do for Geffen. They, the president sat us down and said, look, you know, we know your drummer's got problems. You guys can do whatever you want to. And they had a big, they had a pile of money for us. And we're like, you know what? We don't think it's right to do another urge record at this time. It's, it's, you know, we're, we're done now. We were on the brink, you know, it's teetering on the ledge at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I think those, those two albums were great. I mean, those are solid albums with Geffen. So I'm glad to hear that you guys were able to do what you wanted. And I mean, honestly, I think rock and roll submarine and we both really sound like evolutions of where, what you were building at Geffen's. So I think I just want to compliment you. And like, you know, when I heard Rock and Roll Submarine, I felt like, oh yeah, this is Urge Overkill. This doesn't sound like an album that happened many years after the band's previous album, you know? Just sounds like the next logical step. Uh, yeah, yeah, completely. And that's not easy I, to do. I, I, Very few I, people I, pull that off. I could not agree more. I mean, I, I even though the, the time that lapsed between projects, uh, you know, every time, you know, with Rock Sub and and now we, uh, it just sounded to us like the logical, like you say, evolutionary next step, you know. Um, Which wasn't, we... wasn't immediately imperate, uh, obvious. Like, I don't think I realized how much uh, Rock Sub was going to sound like an Urge record when we were done, because you're so deep into it. It's like, what are we doing? What, who are we? And we play it. We played it for people. It's like, fuck, this sounds like a touch and go album or something. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, you know, you, it, it does. It does retain the the clangor, the clangorous, uh, you know, going somewhere in a hurry sense of of the early urge was really, you know, you take the heroin out of the mix, and I think we had we had a little more uh, places to go uh, uh, after. Funny after how that, that. works. <laughs> um, yeah. Nash, you you did a solo record in the interim, though the debutante. How, how do you how do you even possibly know that? <laughs> you know, um, nobody nobody knew that record came out. I just heard about it the other day because Markley told me about it. So <laughs> yeah, no, a friend of mine had it in his car back in the early oddies, and uh, oh yeah. my god, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we took time off, and Eddie did his. We each pursued. You know, our respective solo uh, projects, and uh, yeah, I, but I mean that that came and went. I mean, with, with no one really the wiser, uh, which was all right, I guess. But uh, I'm, I'm just shocked you even know about it. So. I was in a car with my family uh, driving somewhere, and this uh, Steely Dan song comes on, and it sounds a little weird to me. I'm like, okay. <laughs> The Steely Dan and, and my brother had to tell me. My brother Dave was like, "That's 
fucking mashed potato. <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're right. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that was on the radio. I'm like, I didn't even know about this. It was pretty good, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, we did do another one that, that, that we didn't put on the album. Uh, what was it? Uh... Midnight Cruiser, yeah. Uh, but that, that was a label. It was a good label. It was the one that Josh Homme, um, Stoney from... Uh, uh, Pearl Jam. From Pearl Jam was sort of like, well, Nash, I want, you know, want you to make an album. And you had a good track record with having put out that first... Uh, Queens of the Stone Age album, which we were crazy about. You know, when that happened, it was like, uh, this is that, how rock that, should sound, you know? Uh -huh. That's one of my favorite albums, yeah. And, and yeah, that's we kind of how he came in with that, because they've always had a, you know, they, they've been pals and stuff. So, and I think Stone decided, you know, he thought better of being a record exec some years after that, but yeah, you know, well, things changed he, quickly. He kind of pulled the, uh, and I love Stoney, but uh, he, he kind of, I don't think deliberately, but inadvertently, certainly, uh, kind of pulled the rug out from under that project. Uh, you know, it was coming out on Loose Groove, his label. And then just before it was, you know, they loaded it in the can and ready to fire, and he just sort of quietly sold the label. So, so I mean, it, it was sort of a, an abortion of sorts, you know. Yeah. But I think... Uh, I think um, I don't think I could ever forgive Nash though for actually going on tour with Cheap Trick, which was the band that I had the posters up in my junior high. <laughs> yeah, and Nash is out on tour with Cheap Trick. That I could never yeah, hide. We, yeah, we did uh, somehow find ourselves yeah opening for Cheap Trick for like a week, I and mean, you know, and you know. Is that why you stayed like, broke no, up for so long? They, they, they were rock gods to us. You know? So and. Yeah. Ash said that, you know, with Robin Zander, I have no idea, you know, how he's beyond human, but Nash, Nash was like, yeah, he was uh, like smoking Lucky Strikes the whole time and still hitting these notes. I don't know. Oh my if that's God. True. He, 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 he hit uh, all of his glory notes. How? I call them glory notes every night, but like when he wasn't singing, he'd be side stage swigging you know out of you know out of a bottle of like uh you know jack daniels or something and smoking you know filterless lucky strikes and then you know pick up the mic again and and, and he nailed every glory you know like how does this fuck do this that's his secret yeah you know i got into cheap trick um later in in college after i, I so in high school you guys were my very favorite band so and then later i discovered cheap trick and I kind of, you know, was like, oh, these guys, to me, Cheap Trick sounded like Urge Overkill. So I hope you guys uh, appreciate that. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if, if any comparisons, you know, if, if, there's been a few uh, over the years, but any time we were compared to Cheap Trick, I mean, you, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, nothing sh short of, uh, you know, an honor. 
Yeah. Uh, we got compared to Kiss a few times, which Ed and I did not understand. Well, it also it felt complimentary. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see, like, with, uh, you're both pretty theatric. Mm -hmm. You both have a real aesthetic. Yeah. With the... Uh, you know, Rick Nielsen, I'm still like, I've been listening to his tunes for years, but when I sit down and realize uh, his tunes really, every one of them has some antecedent in a Beatles progression yeah. or something, but something he does something with every song that's just so simple and brilliant. I, I just never, I I've never run out of being amazed by by those guys and yeah, and, yeah. and and, and, and they being you know they're rock for you know it's it's like illinois all the yeah. way you know they're from here and it's yeah. like so great yeah, and to I, me that's the greatest I, rock ever homegrown yeah and, and he was never they were never afraid to to wear their influences on their sleeve you know i mean beatles obviously a uh, big star you know i mean that you know they they, they, you know, they, they never tried to make it their own. I mean, I mean, they, they just, you know, hung it on their sleeve. You know? And from the years in the playing in bars, they've got all these covers that I didn't know they do. They do "Waiting for the Man." Uh, they do a yeah. "VU" that they've done for yeah. years. You know, I, I, they're always kicking out something new that they say, "Oh yeah, we've been doing that for years." You know, yeah. I, I saw yeah. them one summer, probably at their lowest point in their career. I saw them play a out of the way really bad bar in Brainerd, Minnesota. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, these guys never quit. Well, yeah, I mean, they really you know, put but, in the time, paid their dues. Uh, the, the first time we met Xander, you know, we were at some, you know, playing some county fair somewhere. And, you know, we were, so we're standing in this, you know, empty trailer, you know, it's our dressing room. And there's a knock at the door and we open up and it's fucking Robin <laughs> Sander. And he walks in, he just looks around, doesn't say anything. And then peers through the blinds, you know, of the trailer uh, out at the, at the fair and says, corn dog circuit. I fucking hate it. <laughs> that, was, that was his icebreaker. Corn dog circuit. I fucking hate it. <laughs> it's a good quote. Absolutely. Yeah. But he called, yeah, I guess I've been playing a lot of county fair. You know, like, they, I never heard that term corn dog circuit. Yeah, I like it. So, That's brilliant. Yeah, but they were just they were, they were just swell guys. And mm -hmm. They're older than we are. I remember we, we hadn't met them before, and this is before, you know, Urge was really in the in the spotlight, as it were, but we had just finished doing the, we had we had a break, it was a break during uh, recording Saturation, and we did uh -huh. that, you know, those background vocals that go, you know, the, 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 the in the chorus, we, we do, yeah, and I know it well. Yeah. I'm not sure they wanted to hear this at that their point of their career, but I remember uh, I didn't I hadn't even met those guys that they were playing some historic, you know, they were playing their records at the Park West. Like one night they play each record. It's it was a legendary show. I remember. Right, I, I, I remember. I was like, hey, yeah. hey, really excited. Like, 
we just totally like ripped you off on this song we just recorded. <laughs> kind of, it's not exactly what he wanted to hear at the time. So silence, you know, awkward silence. <laughs> Kind of curious about your um, aesthetic in the 90s like it was kind of the antithesis of what was popular like everybody's like sort of unkempt and sloppy and you guys are like dressed to the nines you're really you know high fashion or sort of glam rock kind of branded glam rock yeah branding right yeah. like no, no we were oh. sharp we, we, we made Got sure we were sharp <laughs> I guess the, the, the branding idea kind of came uh, through, I think Nash uh, was always an extremely competent uh, visual artist and cartoonist. And we, uh, I think we're one of the, one of the first bands to sort of self-consciously uh, take up this sort of slick branding as an ironic uh, thing. 
because when we sort of thought of all these ideas, this was before we thought that any noise rock band on Touch and Go was ever going to be get arrested. So it sort of was all in good fun. You know, even even the idea of, of you know, it, it almost was a provocative move because there, there was this ethos of sort of like, well, you don't want to be trying too hard to be like professional or a, however professional you might be, you certainly don't want to appear that way. Yeah, absolutely. And we were yeah. so into, you know, one band that, that did this shamelessly and with great effect was ZZ Top, we've always been into and had a good sense of fun with it. And as well, we were always into uh, the Dusty Radio and a lot of the soul bands who were unashamedly smooth. And, you know, we were in the center of, you know, if we wanted to buy some sharp suits, Chicago and, and the 90s was the last place that they were selling like hotcakes. So we just go down to the <laughs> south side and we had our, our pick a place that people were only more than happy to to host us but i'm envious you know a lot of this kind of had to was was kind of provocative just because it was just not done off stage anybody who's in a rock band is is a joker and you know the gags go on forever but that somehow didn't really uh it didn't extend to to the on stage or something you shared with the audience so much and we kind of wanted to maybe bring a little more fun back into it or some, so I guess some uh, nod to the fact that, that, yeah, it's a show. The more we did it, the more we got a rise out of people who are like, well, you know, what, I can't, what do you guys, it seemed to perplex people. And that was one thing that we liked to do is just sort of push buttons yeah. or, or go the opposite way.
This is Devin Ratliff from Los Angeles, California. If you're enjoying Low Profile, please consider supporting the show by donating at patreon.com slash lowprofile. It also helps a lot when you subscribe and give the show a good rating. And tell your friends. The Morrison family will be forever grateful, and it will help Mark Lee to keep spending time on this work. I, I can understand, you know, the, the feelings of a 15-year-old, like, uh, you know, the angst and, like, the, the imagery on MTV is, like, you know, people in chains and burning in hell and all that. Yeah. It's like, guys, we're 25 years old. This is, you know, uh, for real? Are you kidding me now? I mean, <laughs> it, it really was. We wanted to go the opposite. And the guys in the bands were the first people to, to, to really dig that, especially Nirvana. Kurt was like, you know, you guys, this is brilliant. When when can we get our suits? He was yeah. he was one hundred percent behind that, into it. that yeah, philosophy. When we when we toured with them, they, they, Kurt always insisted I, they wanted to wear our suits, but they didn't know. <laughs> <Awesome. it. laughs> yeah, well, they're sweaty and stinky, but sure <laughs> right it was certainly it was inconvenient we had to hire a guy to just to take care of them wow you know, they, they would get so wet it's like you jumped in the ocean after a show you yeah. couldn't go near them so we, we had to i mean that was an extra expense we yeah. had to they, they have somebody nasty. made them and and you know uh these days you'd probably be able to make disposable wear for for that it yeah get so I, nasty Hot hot tip for any up and coming bands: Do not wear crushed velvet on stage. <laughs> Looks so good though. I mean that that one hundred percent worked on me. I remember seeing you guys like I think on David Letterman, and going like, "Wow, what is this? This is like, you know, this is this is speaking to me more than a lot of the you know the popular loud rock bands were at the time." So. You know, job and, well done. I think you guys are really kind of ahead of. I think me, that is true. Is is for for the, you know, the grunge rock really was, was folk. You know, was maybe laser focused on kids that were stuck at home with their parents and they had the TV and, you know, we were like grown men who who wanted to explore our artistic side and were really, I think, aimed at maybe a little. We were a little ahead of our time. Absolutely. And that Absolutely. sort of irony was. I think with Weezer came in on a in a big way, uh, and it just got urge just kind of missed the wave of being a little bit too sophisticated, a little bit, a couple of years earlier than, than than the rest of the world believed, you know, and yeah. you know by the time they caught up with us, we were deeply in our own uh, a well of our own making, but uh, you know I still have to say that the the two records we did on on geffen were, were artistically successful in terms of even the darkness of of the period of exit the dragon was i i felt was an artistic success and and that's the one thing is like the label didn't come out and sell it tell us but like our pals in the industry were like you dumb asses all you had to do was remake saturation and you guys would be fucking ruining the world right now but uh you know that's not the urge way yeah. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah. Nash, yes. can you hear me okay? Um, yeah. I okay. wanted to, we, we were both talking about um, 
the final song on Exit the Dragon. Speaking of being ahead of the curve. Uh, digital Black epilogue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's about Selena, who had recently passed, and she wasn't very, like, she was world famous, but not mainstream, like, for, like, the English-speaking population. Yeah, whereas now, I mean, you can see, you can buy a Selena record at Target. Well, yeah, she had just died, and, uh, you know, we were in the studio, and I, I, I kind of had the workings of that tune, but no lyric, and, you know, it, it just kind of presented itself. That, that's another recording that we just could not reproduce in, in, in Studio 4. Um, so we use the original tracks, you know, of the, the half-inch eight-track. Yeah, the Selena thing, that was that was Nash's thing. I, I didn't even really know what was going on with that. It's amazing because that she's still a, a very salient figure, and I, I don't know if anybody knows that... Uh, you know, Cato called it like 25 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, she, she did enjoy uh, much posthumous success, uh, you know, be, be just because she was, you know, murdered. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that literally, had, had, that was, you know, the headlines at the time, 94, 95. And yeah, we just, you know, I, I was just looking for something to sing about. I've got felt strongly about the music, but you know, it, it, I wanted it to mean something. But, but then, Nash, Nash, you were like in a fugue state about this stuff. It was like literally, you you only came out of the you 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 only came out of the studio after the sun came up. We didn't know where you were, what you were doing. You, <laughs> you, you were in another studio with like another guy who wasn't in the band for weeks. Yeah, I, I remember. Doing, yeah, to finish that track. Uh, I, I, I do recall uh, doing an all-nighter, uh, you know, in Studio B, uh, just to finish it. And it was crazy, and, you know, needless to say, we, we had plenty of uh, desserts. You probably lost your mind. You had lost your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anything for Salinas, right? Yeah. But I, I was really surprised how, how well that turned out. Um, I, I didn't imagine uh, it being some sort of epic or anything, but it, we just kept, you know, piling shit on there, and and it, it just, you know, it just has a great orchestral swell to it. It's a real contrast how it, the album ends that way and then starts with jaywalking and the, just like, just the breadth yeah. of the scope of that record. It was like, yeah, like you guys said, not a planned send off, but it was, it was a nice, big package very, to send off. It's in. a very strange record, very dark record, but I yeah. mean, it really did reflect where we were as a band, as people you know, um, at the time. It's yeah. always been difficult to, to sort of focus, you know, some of the most successful bands kind of hone their, you know, ZZ or, 
even bands from our era like Weezer, they kind of had ones, they really were able to distill their sound. And we, we were just too restless uh, artistically to really find a, a way to contain the, the urge sound in one. It was always going to be diffuse and and out of our control and and you know any attempts to to kind of focus and 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 you know refine it to be make it more understandable or digestible just never worked and and i think that was another thing is like when we were asked to do two more records we're like where do we even i mean how where do we even start it's like yeah i don't know yeah. and that's yeah. that's kind of you know that's I, I guess I'm proud of that now, but that's yeah. always been the nature yeah. of the beast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have no, a little bit mean, After Dragon, yeah, we, we were just done. I mean, just, I mean, done. Like, okay. I mean, it's amazing that the, the three of us have, have, have survived that, but, you know, I mean, we really were done. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm being told we've got another uh, interview coming up. So. All right. Well, um, before you go, um, <clears throat> whose idea was it to do a Wham cover and then use that as the lead-off single? <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we, we just... Nashkados. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know uh, the, the can and I were uh, uh, doing... Uh, the only time we've uh, done... Yeah, we like did hear the song, and we were like, who the... F is this? I wasn't familiar with it, and yeah, but I don't I mean, think we were, either. We like the song. We were, we were on this acoustic tour, just uh, you know, the King and I, and uh, you know, and, and Coffee House Urge, and people seemed to dig it. We we couldn't understand, what you know, how people were so, you know, but it's Europe, you know, it's a little different over there, but but they were really into it, you know, and so uh, before it's dawn and. So, and I think we were, we, I believe we were leaving Moscow and, you know, kind of anxious to leave. It was, it was a nice visit, but very strange. And, and we were leaving. Uh, and, you know, our, it was just, you know, and I and, and uh, our TM driver. And so, you know, he had the radio on in the morning. And, you know, anything flies on Radio Free Europe. Uh, and the song came on, and anyway, and I both were like, hey, "What the f is this?" Thank you both so much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Great, and great interview. Thanks, we're looking gentlemen. forward to your next album in 2033. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Oh. All right. Okay, guys. Uh, thank All you. All right, brother. Cheers. Okay, gotta go. Thank you very much. Bye -bye. 
You've been listening to Low Profile, featuring an interview with Nash Cato and Eddie King-Roser of the group Urge Overkill. Their new album, We, is out February 2022. If you like this show, there's more info on this and all previous episodes at lowprofilepoppodcast.com. This is Mark Lee Morrison. Feel free to send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. My address is lowprofilemarkley, that's M-A-R-K-L-Y, at gmail.com. 